This is episode number 33 of the Abuse Talk podcast with me, Jennifer Gilmore. Welcome to the Abuse Talk podcast. My name is Jennifer Gilmore. I turned my mess into a message. I'm an author and advocate for women in abusive relationships and believe that together we are louder. Each fortnight, there is a new episode on the Abuse Talk podcast, a series of interviews with those that work in the domestic abuse sector, getting an inside feel for what it's really like in their job role and sharing it with all of you. But today we are sharing something different. We're introducing survivor stories, those who have lived it, experienced it and are willing to share. In this episode, I speak to Shikes Srothia, 20 years under house arrest. He talks through his journey of childhood abuse and how he's taken steps into his recovery. This interview, well, this conversation was really, well, it was dif- difficult to listen to. So do look after yourself when you're listening to his story today. Before we get started, I want to say a huge thank you to Rockpool. They're the main sponsors of Hashtag Abuse Talk and they deliver trauma-informed programmes across the UK. Obviously, they have adapted to um, providing online courses now, um, so do check them out at rockpool.life. They have also given me some copies of the Recovery Toolkit by Sue Penner, and I'm going to be running some giveaways online over the festive period, so keep an eye out on our Twitter, hashtag AbuseTalk. I also need to say a big thank you to Susan Rahima and Katrina Hay for being a patron on the Hashtag Abuse Talk tier. Um, they find out what's happening behind the scenes, the news and updates, what's happening, and also they get the Twitter chat themes ahead of anybody else for being on that platform. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Jen L. Gilmore. But let's get into that interview. That's what you're waiting for. And I'm sure you will be um, just amazed by Shakesh and his journey. We've um, kind of connected through hashtag abuse talk, the Twitter chat that we do every Wednesday, 8 till 9pm UK time. And um, Shakesh has been joining in, haven't you? And we've just recently got talking, which is um, really nice because not always do I get the opportunity to have um, those conversations with people and um, it just really led to um, inviting you on the podcast really and um, Mm. being able to give you that platform to talk about your story so welcome um, onto the podcast it's lovely to have you you. here Um, I don't know how you first discovered hashtag abuse talk do you remember or did you just accidentally stumble across it I've actually been thinking about that and I can't (laughs) quite remember um I think it was just something maybe someone I'm following um was you know interacting within the talk and I saw it um I saw it on their profile or something but yeah either I came across it just by accident um or I yeah I was 
leave it as that I came across it by accident <laughs> yeah no problem and um you obviously I've, I've had a look um and you've sort of introduced yourself to me um you're an author writer mm-hmm. poet um yes. and speak to empower so mm-hmm. um I'm obviously very intrigued to find out a bit about your experience so can you um sort of take us to the beginning really um and what's led you to this journey of being an author and writer and many other things yeah um so I guess I haven't really I wasn't fortunate enough to have a loving childhood and things like that so the abuse started right at the age of five so it wasn't like within my teens or anything it was you know really really young so in that sense it I didn't have time to develop within my childhood teenager it was just at bang on at age five abuse and then until I left um at the age of 27 the abuse continued in many forms and so it's a 20-year-long journey, um, and there's different kinds of abuse that's happened. So sexual abuse by two different guys, um, one being my own eldest brother, but I don't obviously refer to him as that. Just mm. I only refer to it so people know who I'm talking about. Another was a family friend, mm. and that happened at the ages of five, seven, and then 12. And it was more than just one occasion by two, two of them. And then from age seven, I guess, yeah, until I left, it was just emotional abuse, neglect, physical abuse, just many, many different forms, you know, like blackmail, um, fearing, like scaring me off with different things. And, um, and one thing that most people can't quite get to grips with is like you come across films and you see like characters um being trained like secret agents and stuff from young ages and taught how to kill people and things like that um with me from a young age it was more about being brainwashed into believing a pedophile ring was after me and the only way I could really live happy like if I was to ever get married have kids that wouldn't be possible if they were around me because I'm always being followed and things like that this obviously wasn't the case it was just all lies just to control me and just to keep me in the house where they basically wanted to keep me as a slave and I'll come to the reason of why that was in a few moments um But at that young age, when you are being told things like that, I mean, who are you as a child to question your own parents? Mm. Um, When in school, you know, you're always being told your your parents are always right, always listen to them, always do as they say. And so you don't really know any different because even your own teachers are telling you to listen to your parents. Mm. Um, but then you start getting older, you start growing, um, you're becoming more where, you know, you hear conversations in school, outside, and you begin thinking about so much, especially within your teen years, because you enter puberty and then 
hormones start coming and it's just another whole journey um i was severely bullied in school um for being skinny um i think back now and i'm like well why was i so skinny why why couldn't i eat why why wasn't i able to eat properly mm. um and i now realize that it was obviously a side effect due to the abuse and for the abuse that was continuously happening like i was always always in fear um and being around fear being around people who are abusing me i mean who can really eat in peace or be in a position where you realize as a child or even as a young adult or even as a young person what why is this happening um i think i only really began fully putting on weight was at the age of 21 22 mm-hmm. um, um and it was after therapy in 2012 so at the ages of five seven and 12 i was sexually abused from seven until i left emotional abuse um during my teenagers bullying um obviously a lot of abuse as a child control you know as i said being taught to how to hunt someone down, um, surveillance, things like that, right from a young age. Um, Most kids would be asleep by seven, eight, you know, nine. Mm. I would be up until like 11, 12 at times, um, just basically writing down every movement in the neighborhood, Um, just be up. There was a lot of car crime going on. And so my father thought it was best for me and my older brother to be up late at night observing with binoculars um writing down every movement seeing if we ever caught anyone damaging the car Mm. um and then it went on to showing me where apparently my enemies lived enemies meaning his siblings who he felt um were the reason for many things happening in his life there's been a lot of different Um, confrontations between him and his families and he doesn't really have contact with them anymore Mm -hmm. Um, and so he'd take me and my eldest brother around like down their street and stuff and have us remember their addresses names literally everything and then it got to the point of being taken to the park and shown how to break bottles if we ever needed to harm someone, shown how to make petrol bombs so at a really young age and all those kinds of things. Um, and when I turned 18, it got to the point where he was physically, like literally mentally preparing me to go to prison because he was like, the only way you're going to live is if you do something and go to prison that's the only way you're going to come out and you won't be a coward. And then you hear about things where, oh, you know, like you need to be a man. You don't cry. Don't show people your tears because then you'll be weak and all these sorts of things. Um, I think the big change for me was in 2011 because that's when the whole 
recovery journey started and what triggered it was the financial abuse and it was uh, I'm not sure if you remember but a few years ago when I was um, 16 until it used to be a government thing where young people who were from 16 to 18 would get EMA which is basically Mm. um, education maintenance allowance and it would be if you had a certain percentage of attendance that's where where you'd get like 30 pounds a week and then they'd give you a hundred pound every Christmas and Easter as a bonus and so so I found my parents struggling one time and I'm like well I have a hundred pounds here take it and just pay off the bills and at first they were hesitant but I'm like no I want to help you know this will help you pay off the bills go ahead Mm. and then at first they were like oh no we're gonna pay you back and we can't we can't take it we can't take your money it's your money we can't do that we are your parents and everything but then slowly I realized that it began as a more regular thing where they'd come and ask me and I'd give it to them and I wouldn't bat an eyelid I wouldn't say much because I know they're struggling and they'll pay me back as they were saying Mm. but the more it got into it I found myself um especially in college um, because I started receiving them when I was in sixth form and then I went um, to college until 19 and that's when I realized okay this is becoming a lot more than just me trying to help because now they're even taking lunch money from me like there were times in college where I didn't even eat even though it was just two days a week but I mean how how can someone not be able to eat you know yeah. um it's just not possible especially if a parent is taking money from their own child money that should be for them to buy food mm. that's where it all started getting out of hand and that's where the real argument started happening um and slowly after that it led to um obviously having the abuse investigated because I spoke out in 2010 to my family right. and my father was like oh no don't go to the police they won't really do much and nadi da di da but I kept feeling what if he's and this is the family friend and I kept thinking what if he's doing this to other people still what if he's doing it to other children I can't just sit here and just let that continue happen when I could actually even though nothing may happen but I could talk and whatever he's doing he'll probably stop or he will be stopped um and so I went ahead and reported it anyway um and obviously no outcome came out and I didn't know about the legal system I didn't know about how you go about things what does a solicitor do what can they help with Mm. but my father knew a lot about it because he's obviously seeked help with lawyers and solicitors and stuff in the past and so he advised me well why don't you find a solicitor 
who deals with sexual abuse cases and try and take him in a civil trial because you need less evidence. Right. And now when I think of it, obviously that wouldn't have been possible because a sexual offence is a criminal charge and it's not a civil matter. Mm. Um, and it would obviously need to go to a criminal court because it's that much of a serious offence. And so I just kept on going thinking he's he wants my best interest in place. But then all that really happened was um, I got in touch with the firm who said that it might be possible to bring a court case, but obviously they made no promises because of the things that they that I had told them about what they went to and things like that. Um, and in the end, all, all that could really happen was compensation. And I'm like, well, I don't really want compensation. I want a court case. Mm. But in the end, obviously, I had to accept it either way. And before I received it, um, both of my parents sat down and they promised to God and all that sort of crap where we won't take any penny that comes because for where it's coming from but as soon as it came into my account that's it thousands and thousands were being taken I mean I received in total 16,500 and after paying the firm their their fee that they um, required I was left with 11,500 and I Mm. received that in May I believe by October, November, that same year in 2011, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when I found myself severely, severely depressed, suicidal, it just completely dark, not being able to sleep. Half the time I didn't even sleep when I used to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it, that's where the whole breaking point came where all the money was gone I finished college and my father kept telling me oh um if you don't sign on at the job center they're gonna think you're working or doing some illegal job and they're gonna come and arrest you so you just need to sign on and I'm like well I'm not fit to work I'm depressed I need help and I I literally begged for help many times. Can you just get a psychiatrist or someone? I need to speak to someone. Mm-hmm. But all he said was, well, if you tell anyone you want to take your life, they're going to give you medication, put you in a mental hospital, and your life is over. Is that what you want? And that scared the hell out of me because it led me to looking up mental hospitals and being like, what are they like? Like, mm-hmm. what happens in them? And when I saw the rooms like cages, uh, you know, in front of windows and stuff, I'm like, I don't belong there. I'm not a harm to anyone. Mm. And that's what made me afraid of getting help sooner. Um, But finally, after two weeks of nagging me, just constant nagging to sign on to benefits, that's what I ended up doing just to shut him up, not realizing he only wanted me to sign up. So he had another way of getting money from me. Mm. Um, two weeks into signing on to benefits, a day came 28th, November, 2011, where I was getting ready to 
go for my interview at the job center um, for a review to see what kind of jobs I could actually look for. And on that same morning, I received a text from my father stating that um, if I have a hundred pounds in my account to put into his, cause we need to pay the mortgage. And he made it seem like I had to do it and I had no choice because I was responsible for paying his mortgage. And that just flipped me off. And that day I, I, it was just completely certain that I'm going to walk out the house now and I'm not coming back. And I had planned to find a tall building somewhere and just jump because I wanted it to make sure that I didn't survive. If, if I'm doing this, I just want to go. I can't, I can't handle this any longer. But instead, I ended up calling an ambulance to save myself. And I'm like, I want to know why I suffered this long. Because yeah. how, how can... How can someone be born, suffer from the age of five, get to 19, and they are still experiencing this much pain? Like, how can that be possible? Why is this happening? I want to know. Mm. That's, that's the reason that saved me, wanting to know that why. Um, after getting to the hospital, talking to psychiatrists, and then the well-being service coming home on the 1st December um they called me that same evening after speaking with them when they came to my house and they basically just said you don't need tablets you don't need a mental hospital you don't need none of that all we're gonna do is see what help we can offer you and it what we think you might need is counseling because that's what may help you Mm. and I'm like I'd be more than happy with that I think talking to someone is actually going to help me I've been needing to talk to someone for a while now so after attending counseling in 2012 and then after um, completing counseling the financial abuse started again Um, I mean it started even six days after the the well-being service came came to the house but I just was too traumatized and just still suicidal to even care what money was being taken um and it would always be literally I'd be in tears and he still wouldn't care he'd just tell me to stop tell me to shut the f up and to just he wouldn't leave until he had seen that I had transferred the money from my account but after attending counseling all I was doing was just focusing on myself and just reflecting and processing everything that had happened Um, and then my grandma passed away in August 2012 and I'm like okay he's got he's gonna ask for money now and I can't say no because it's gonna be her funeral but even after the funeral ended until I guess the first week of January 2013, he he didn't really stop. Um, and from twenty from mid 2012 to mid 2013, I stayed in the house the entire year, like didn't step foot outside once. And 
it was obviously due to many reasons. One, I was still processing and recovering. Second, I really didn't have any money to go anywhere. Um, even for for a bus pass, there were many arguments for him to just even leave £10. So I had at least something to go somewhere, but literally nothing. It would always be on zero balance. I mean, my accounts were controlled. I would be told if I could spend, if I couldn't spend. But when he realised he can't, he can't really stop me spending my own money, I think that's when he realised, you know, I, I can't do this to, to that extreme because he's already seeked help. He could tell someone again. Um, but it was still bad. There was just a lot of psychological trauma, a lot of brainwashing that I was still recovering from and I was still believing that I cannot live until I have harmed someone and gone to prison. And I still kept thinking that a paedophile ring was after me. Until 2016, I just constantly believed that a paedophile ring was after me. And that fear just ate away slowly and slowly. Obviously, many other things have happened. And if I go into them, we'll be here next week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think probably the biggest biggest change that has happened throughout all those 20 years is probably realizing of just how much strength someone can have like you come across people and you know they're like I I can't believe I could go through this I can't believe I can do this you don't really know how much strength you have until you need it um that's something no one can really fathom that's something no one can even comprehend of how much strength they can have um i think back you know like i was living in the house that i was being abused for 20 years and it was severe severe abuse but not once did i raise my finger on those who are hurting me I mean the occasions were there I mean the anger was there and it would have been so easy to do things you know for revenge and things like that but then you come to a point and you think what am I going to get out of this like yeah sure I could take my anger out feel much better but by doing that I'm going to be the one who's in prison I'm going to be the one who's going to still be suffering And that's probably the biggest change of realising you don't need to turn out like the ones who have hurt you. Mm. You don't need to do the same things that you were taught to do, Mm. that you have been kept um, kept in to do. Mm. It's, yeah, I guess all I can say is that I am lucky to be alive. That's all I can say. (laughs) Well, I mean, you've just completely unpacked your journey there. And obviously there's so much to it. And, Mm. you know, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, the the fact that, you know, it started at the age of five and went on for all those years. Mm. Um, 
Look, looking back um, throughout your childhood, were there any moments where, you know, there, there was maybe um, somebody at school or um, involved with the family that um, could have reached out and given you that help or support? Were there any signs that services could have looked out for, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think probably the biggest biggest sign when I was in primary school I obviously was attending special classes because I was really slow of due to obvious reasons and when a child is quiet and I mean really quiet mm. there's a reason for it no child is just ever completely quiet without a reason like something has to happen for a child to be to be quiet you know you see nor you see kids who have a normal upbringing just how cheerful and joyful they are just how talkative they are but for a child to be that quiet that there's always a reason mm. every teacher would always say even in high school oh he's such a good boy he he's so quiet i wish all my students were like that but what is the meaning behind that silence? I don't yeah. think anyone ever truly, truly questioned that. That obviously they would say, is there anything? Why is he so skinny? But I don't think anyone truly questioned, why yeah. are you so quiet? Is something happening in the house? Social mm -hmm. services were obviously involved at a young age. And obviously I was told what to say just to make them aware that no everything's fine but there was a lot going on and I think I think the, probably the biggest thing that young people can be aware of right now is what they hear from from their classmates like in primary school I remember um it was a after lunchtime when everyone was sitting down and talking about what they did over the weekend and everything and I said something like oh I was just up late at night looking out the window looking at cars now yeah. that might just seem like oh he, he enjoys looking at cars at night but if that person was to tell the teacher oh this is what he said like he was up late at night looking out the window looking at cars the teacher would question like does his parents let him stay up at night like does yeah. do they know he's looking at cars why is he looking at cars that might just be a completely random thought like this is what he's doing or he can't sleep or something mm. but then obviously comes many other questions and I mm. think that's probably the biggest thing, awareness. I don't think there is enough awareness in schools even now. There is just so much more that teachers could be aware of. But I also think they're not getting the, the amount of training they deserve, the amount of training they need yeah. to be aware of things. And throughout that, um, I think being quiet is the biggest one. But it's also things like the mental health service being involved. 
um, and they, they were involved with my father and he would obviously report things to the police and so on. My kids are in danger and la di da di da. One day I came home from school. I think I was 16 at the time, if I remember correctly, 15, 16. And I wasn't sure who the people were, but they were talking to my father in the living room. And after they left, he basically told me that um, they were the mental health service. They basically said that from the cases I'm reporting to the police, they believe I am delusional and they were trying to give me tablets to take to control my thoughts. And that's when I, I mean, I didn't know what to say at the time, but when I look back now, that's when I realized they could have actually done a lot more. Like yeah. social services could have been involved at that point where if, if a guy is reporting things to the police and they believe he is delusional, what must he be telling his children? We need to ask his children and see what they are hearing or what they might be seeing or, you know, just anything. But mm. no one, no social services ever came to me at that point and asked me, um, what sort of things is your father telling you? or mm. are you seeing anything or anything like that so there have been many occasions altogether there have been 11 but there's a recent occasion which makes it 12 so out of those 20 years there's been more than 50 percent of a chance something could have been noticed and further abuse could have been prevented i mean 12 different occasions within those 20 years that is shocking 12 mm. occasions like social services have been go on um obviously you know there were opportunities there weren't they so and they've oh, been they've been missed and yes. you know it's shameful and it's really hard to hear things like that um mm. when you talk about um you know schools and teachers you know knowing all of this information and being you know I think they're really let down in terms of training yeah. so I know that in schools you know maybe the safeguarding lead might get trained you know maybe mm -hmm. a two-day training course on things like domestic abuse or um, any any kind of subjects and then they'll deliver it in an hour staff meeting just to tick a box and yeah. it's you know really frustrating to to have to battle with that and at the same time mm. obviously there's a lot of pressure on teachers to actually keep up with the educational changes as well um right. i do I, I mean i know that um, um i've got three children so what they do in our school is they have awareness days not necessarily do i think awareness days are, are, are good but at least it's something um yeah and I, I wonder what your thoughts are on them we we have um the is it nspcc that do the um the underwear talk you know and right. we also have white ribbon day which is just um pastors actually and usually mm. there's an assembly related to that but I always question the pastoral care or the lead on to that because there's going to be children, uh, you know, so many in the school and in each class that mm. are going to be affected by that, that uh, this is what's happening at home. 
but you know what happens from that conversation so what do you think about awareness days like that would it have been something that would have helped you um would you have felt able to reach out to somebody if you know you've been taught about different forms of abuse and that it's inappropriate and it's wrong and you know that kind of theme oh absolutely I um when I was in primary school in year five or year six obviously in sex education you know we saw a cartoon version of a male and a female and what happens and things like that. Mm. That's the point where I realized, okay, this is what I experienced. But then I was left with the question, if a guy and a girl get together and they have a baby, what does a guy and a guy mean? Mm. And then the other examples are in 2011, where I got curious, how do people move on from abuse like I want to move on I need to know how how do people move on from abuse and so I started reading articles came across YouTube videos and I just watched people tell their stories of how it is possible to move on it is possible Mm. to escape abuse and get away from it and to finally live a new normal life whatever normal that is for that person yeah and I also learned how drugs alcohol things like that won't help so that those are the things I completely stayed away from I never coped with any alcohol or no drugs mm. nothing like that I guess the only addiction that I had was porn addiction and that was because when I was abused by my oldest brother I was shown it porn was involved within the abuse and so that became an addiction mm. and at the same time I was taught how to masturbate so when you when you teach a young teen who's just entered puberty and you teach him how to masturbate and you show him porn I mean that becomes a completely messed up cycle where that child just knows one thing and he just constantly continues to do it Mm. but if I was in school and those awareness classes were there like this isn't normal if this is what's happening in your house Mm. I think I would have spoken out many many years ago I would have said something to a teacher and that's it things would have happened Mm. but that's that it was obviously wasn't there so yeah yeah um the other the other thing obviously you touched on was um financial abuse and right you mentioned I mean that that's a whole subject in mm. itself isn't it um yeah. but you mentioned that initially um you were the you obviously offered the money to help your family and right. they were they were reluctant um and I find that you know obviously interesting it must have been a, a part of or the the start of you know what they were going to maybe go mm. do going forwards so why do you think they were originally reluctant do you think they were planning on you know taking your money or whether they genuinely were reluctant in that first moment in that first moment they genuinely were reluctant um why they started to take it and just continuously abuse me financially after that 
I have no idea, but at first, mm. I, I don't know, at first, I guess they were just the kind of parents that are proud, like, no, we, we cannot take money from our kids. We are meant to be there for our kids. Our kids can't be there for us, you know, things like that. Mm. But I guess when it led to desperation where they really, really needed money, it was mainly my father who took the lead on the financial well on all types of abuse anyway mm. and he supported my eldest brother by helping him get away when I reported him too so in that sense I guess it makes him an abuser too of of supporting someone who did such thing mm. so in that sense he was always the one who led my mother is just a quiet Indian submissive housewife who just does what she is told you know that that's it they didn't meet out of love or anything like that. It was an arranged marriage. And so mm. she's always been just someone who who just does whatever she's told, just a housewife, things like that. Mm. But she knew what was happening and she kept quiet. The only time she spoke was too late and it was the times where she felt guilt for not speaking out earlier. I mean, how can... I've I've spoken to many mothers over the years like I just want your opinion and what if if you were in a position where you saw your partner treating your kids like this what would you have done what would you do and they've said the same thing every single one of them I would just leave my partner he would be out my kids come first that's it Mm. but in my case that wasn't how it was and anything I told my mother, she'd go and tell my father. And there would be no secrets, anything like that. So in that sense, I never really had either parents to speak to. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of like when desperation got to him, that's all he saw. Mm. Okay, he offered money. I'm just going to take it. I'll make false promises. I'll pay you back. la di da di da Mm. Altogether, he's taken 18,000 and I've not got a penny back. Um, and that's probably, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It, it started happening out of desperation. Mm. And to that point, he, he didn't even care what he was doing, even though he was aware of how he was making me feel. And even though he was there, that I almost took my life because of it, but it still didn't stop him after that. Mm. And it just continued with more and more abuse. So I'm not well, quite sure. Yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? To continue. And yeah. It's hard to think about. And um, I feel like mm. it's a never ending jigsaw that you're always trying to piece things yeah. together. Or sometimes, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes I can wake up from a dream or have a, a moment like a little trigger in the daytime and go that's why that happened or you know and oh, think, yes. piece it together or you know and, mm. or you educate yourself don't you on different things and you sort mm. of go oh there's a reason behind it and I think if it makes me feel better knowing it's a behavioral problem with them and yeah. knowing it's not something at fault with me, because I think a lot Absolutely. of the time we believe it's fault within ourselves. And mm. um, well, let's let's um, you know talk about you go, going further into your journey, and um, you know you've got um, 
a book out called Almost, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming yep. this is all about your journey and what you've um, gone through and experienced. It is, yes. So I, I had never really thought of writing a book or anything. The, I guess it all started... Um, well, I'll start, I'll start so in 2014. That's when my journey to basically recovery, like full, full, full on recovery, even though it started in 2011, but 2014 was the start of actively doing something myself, joining college to do something and moving on. So I went on to the Princess Trust team program, which is a 12 week personal development course. And after that, I volunteered um, at the Victoria Columbia Foundation, um, which if anyone doesn't know about, it's basically a children's charity where they work with parents and children um, who have experienced abuse, who have been let down by the authorities, and they make the policies and practices better. And so I did my two-week work placement there while on the team programme and decided I'm going to volunteer after to keep the routine going because I didn't want to find myself back at home just doing nothing. And then after I did a counselling skills level two course while um, I became a young ambassador for the Prince's Trust. Wow. And I guess that's where my basis, the basis of the personal development and professional development started Mm. which involved public speaking um to various size audiences to different types of audiences some were really formal like labor party conferences um banks i mean lords were present things like that Mm. that's where i got a feel of talking about my journey and how I got here and things like that that's where I realized I I can actually use my experiences in this way to actually raise awareness I think that's where I fell in love with public speaking I mean to go from not being able to talk in school to literally not being able to shut my mouth now <laughs> I mean that, that, that's a huge thing you know um no, it's am- and I it's think amazing. that's where yeah I think that's where I realized I I can actually talk and I can use this in a positive way I, I don't need to feel ashamed about it I should really own it rather than mm-hmm. just not talking about it because it's not really going to do me good at all um and then a um, coach and diploma which was an online course and then after that I started a life coaching business which didn't go anywhere in the end but the whole journey of starting it working on it and everything knowing what it takes to try and get a business together up and running I mean I did it all by myself like I had I didn't ask for any help at all apart from ideas floating around from person to person Mm. but all the physical elements like all the designing did the whole website and everything myself and that alone um 
was what was just completely mind blowing not realizing how how quickly you can do something when you when you're on a deadline because <laughs> yeah. um, I was already working on my business plan and everything mid um, 2016 but then obviously another event happened where I was like I, I just need to call the police and this needs to stop and so mm. when I did call them right in front of them my father indirectly threatened to make me homeless if I was to ever speak up again and obviously the police heard things they were hearing the things I was saying like I'm being emotionally abused and things like that there's a case going on with his eldest son you know who abused me and things like that but there were five officers in the house and neither of them ask me any open questions of Mm -hmm. um can you just tell us more about that what do you mean this is happening what do you mean by it's about something else nothing I felt more traumatized after they left rather than before Mm -hmm. and so I became suicidal again for the sixth time and I was suicidal for two weeks but then I'm like you know what I'm gonna start my business and I'm gonna do this and that's what kept me going. So in an entire month or, yeah, in in an entire month, I got it all up and running, ordered wow. everything that I needed. And it was just, wow, this is just huge. <laughs> I actually did this. Um, and during that time, I ended up finding some really hard evidence of the things that were happening. So information from both of my parents' diaries like things that they've written in themselves which proves that they are guilty and I obviously have bank statements and things like that which proves money being taken and stuff Mm. and that's a whole nother ball but starting that coaching business is actually what made the made the author journey happen yeah. I was just going to write everything in a PDF and just, just upload it because I just wanted to share my story and just just for it to help people. Mm-hmm. Like I've never been about making money out of my story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But then a close friend of mine um, suggested, well, why don't you write a book? Like, why don't you do it professionally? Like, if this is something that you're going to do as as a career why don't you just do it professionally because it will make more of an impact rather mm. than just doing it like this and I had no idea how far journey would take because <laughs> at first it was just, just like writing one book and like I had never i I didn't pass my GCSEs, nothing. So I had no experience in like English, anything like that. My grammar's just terrible at times, you know. But then I'm like, I can actually do this. And I wrote it all. And that alone was healing in a way because so much came out of it for me alone. And I mean, I'm guessing you felt the same thing when you've written your books and it's just you have no idea the things you realize when you write something and then you read over it, the second draft, the third draft, Mm. and you're editing it. And so for me, 
I was realizing things as I was writing and I couldn't comprehend the amount that I had gone through until I was writing it. Mm. And so I wrote it all up, then designed the cover. And I guess most people wonder, why is it called Almost? Well, that's the story of my life. It's always been almost, you know. Mm. I almost would have taken my life I almost would have become a male prostitute. I almost would have literally ended up in prison. So that's the whole meaning behind the name. But Um, after I published it, um, which was on the 28th of November, 2018, and I chose that date as the date where I got taken to hospital when I called ambulance. And on that day before I called ambulance, I made a promise to myself that I'm going to find out what, why, what happened, why it happened, if it's the last thing I do, even if it kills me. And I think that commitment was completely accomplished in 20 Mm -hmm. I had a huge five hour argument with my father and my mother And after that argument, I realized, okay, they are to blame. They are to blame for everything. Mm -hmm. And during the beginning of 2016, after I reported my oldest brother for the sexual abuse, he he put me through. It it was, it's something that I can't quite explain because it's something that can only be experienced. But I was sitting up on my bed and for a few seconds I just found myself looking in the mirror and it was like I don't know it was like someone was talking to me but not talking to me if that even makes sense and in in my head all I'm thinking is he controlled me because he wanted me to remain in this house to look after his kids to look after my younger brothers, to look after this house, to pay off the mortgage myself. He he did all of this just to keep me in this house. He took all the money from me so I don't go anywhere. Mm. He made me afraid of being around any girl that they would file a false allegation that I raped them. Mm. And so I cannot do this. I cannot, I cannot be... I cannot have a social life. I can't. I cannot be with anyone. I can't be around anyone. And after that, it it was just. I mean, I I can't even understand how I just felt complete peace and not anger. Mm-hmm. But it it was probably the most. I don't know. One of the most powerful light bulb moments I've ever experienced because that broke all of the fear that I was living in that broke the entire control completely Mm. of of control he had over me when someone has control over you it's very impossible for that control to break especially when it's so severe and so when I published the book and I launched it on on that date you know when when I almost took my life Mm -hmm. it 
brought closure to that date because I it, it was left open and it's like that that needs to close now. Mm. It needs to cl- close safely. What I didn't realize is that I would have to step away from my coaching business after I moved away in 2018. And it was a life or death situation where the house was on sale. They did everything they could to take more money from me. And I'm like, I just have to go. It got to the point where I couldn't eat for two weeks or nothing. Because mm. I'm like, where am I going to go? Like, I don't, I don't have a job. The cow on helping me. Where on earth do I go? Luckily, I found a place where the landlord was okay with me being on benefits um, and my circumstances and I explained everything and he was completely fine with it and I'm like if this place wasn't available that I moved into I literally can't tell you where where I would have been right now but I know it wouldn't have been good <laughs> it would have been a lot lot worse it sounds like it um it was almost therapeutic as well um to sort of get that book together um and everything mm-hmm. um which is exactly how i found things is it sort of released it and going back to it and maybe you know reading it is a different story it's mm. it's difficult isn't it to sort of do that however speaking about it it's different i don't know what it is maybe it's the fact that you have to submerge yourself into um, a book um, as such well how can people buy your book and find out about you well they can find me on amazon just by typing my name in or even almost at my first name mm-hmm. and i only have twitter i used to have linkedin facebook and instagram but that i only social media only mm. when i started my business yeah. Obviously, when I stepped away from the side and everything, I closed Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, because it wasn't really doing anything for me. Mm. But what I didn't realize is that there's a whole writing community on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> and if only I had known that long ago, but I only found writing community um, just this year and I think that that was actually a similar time when I came across abuse talk so it mm. both ended up working together in a way no that's good um, I mean the there's definite communities on Twitter and that's what I really enjoy about Twitter yeah. joining in those um mm. topical conversations um, and especially in the writing yes. world giving snippets and sections of your book and reading other people's it's you know Mm, and everybody encouraging and supporting one another so it's really useful so if um anybody's listening Mm. um just go on twitter or amazon um to find shikesh and we're going to have to close there but i just want to say Mm -hmm. a massive thank you because everything that you've just spoken about it's it's really not easy to do i know you have talked about your journey and you deliver it but it I know also the toll it takes doing that as well so you know thank you for you know sharing those experiences um with us and for showing us where the signs and the opportunity for the support and help could have been you know perhaps that could Mm. will help somebody else think 
on people and I always think sharing signs symptoms what to look out for um, and behavior of a victim um, and personalities is is a big part of being able to reach out to somebody so thank you for sharing sharing those as well and as always we'll probably see you on um twitter weren't we (laughs) joining in so uh, an hour later (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much there's just one thing that I would like to say those who will end up reading my book it won't it won't be the ending because there will be a follow-up book written after that so there will be one more that will finalize everything so I just want to put that out there in case anyone thinks okay this is it no the journey will continue after that which I didn't even know it would (laughs) but yeah it will um well well do you have a date for that or an idea um i have i'm i'm just currently waiting for an investigation um against three officers to end and the case the domestic abuse and stuff might actually reopen which obviously i can't give any details because it's still ongoing but that's that's the reason um there will be another book because mm. apparently the journey wasn't over <laughs> but wow. I'm planning on starting it sometime early next year because right. there, there's some that I can obviously write which moving away and stuff has happened which mm-hmm. I can write about that now but yeah I'm hoping that that book is also released in November on the 28th next mm. year but Either way, I will be posting updates about it on Twitter, so everyone oh, yeah. will will be informed. Yeah. Well, definitely keep us um, posted on any I developments shall. of that. Um, and again, sharing your journey, um, you just don't know who it's going to help, and I think that's yeah. something you know that you said earlier on about mm. you don't want anybody else to be a victim of that person, and that yeah. and now it's about you know strangers reading that material and mm. being inspired to be able to do something about it the fact that yeah. you managed to you know report it um mm. is you know it's such a big deal and I really hope that everything is wrapped up as it say because it's it's been so long for you to have to go through um what you've been through um you d- definitely need that period of I don't know what you want to call it, but calm, um, just have a, a, a yeah. break from that side of things. Um, and hopefully Absolutely. you've had that right support um, and you're in that, you know, really mm. a, a better place. Um, and, Definitely. you know, thank yeah. you for ringing for an ambulance and, you know, not doing that because mm. you just don't know who you're helping. Yeah, Absolutely. So we will keep um, mm. we'll keep up today and um, we shall and let us know on this second book and we can let everybody know. I <laughs> Watch <will>. this space. <laughs> <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> A big thank you to Shikesh once again for agreeing to talk about something that is so um, hard and I can't even use the word hard can I because you just can't even comprehend um, just what he's been through so thank you so much um, Shakesh, for doing that. Now it is almost the Christmas period and we have yet to get 
our podcast episode dates together for the new year. I can't believe I'm saying that. So all I would say is subscribe to our channels so you can follow on, so you can be alerted of when the next um, podcast episode is out and hopefully you'll see it ping up. Um, You can also listen on Access Northwest radio station uh, three times a week, Wednesdays at 8, Saturdays at 2 and Mondays at 5am. You have been listening to Jennifer Kilmore, author of Isolation Junction and Clipped Wings. Both can be found on Amazon or at jennifergilmore.com. 